You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. And as always, this show is brought to you by my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. They ensure that I can bring you interesting content and fascinating conversations every single week. So for this week, I have to thank Bridget, Reverend Jaden, and Greg Rogers. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. There are other ways to support the show, though, and one of the best ways is to leave five stars on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts that tells our digital overlords that this show is worth sharing with others. So I will read a quick five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is from a reviewer in the United States, a name that I will not attempt to pronounce. And they say, new TST member, I'm so glad I came across your work and podcast. I'm a new member, and deciphering books, articles, interviews, etc. to really find my place is a little overwhelming, and the content here is really helpful. So I'm incredibly glad that the content here has been helpful. And of course, we don't just cover Satanism. We also cover all kinds of other stuff. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome Dex to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. So we are colleagues in the Satanic Temple. We see each other on a near way, near weekly basis. We work on ordination stuff together. But I wanted to have you on the show not to talk about Satanism, although that might come up over the course of this conversation, but to talk about your fascinating recent coming out. And you've written incredibly movingly about this on your website and your writing and your conversations about this have just been so interesting that I wanted to have you on the show as a friend to talk about this because it's such a misunderstood subject. So you recently came out as someone with antisocial personality disorder. Yes. So first of all, Tell us some about who you are <laughs> and what you do, uh, and and then we can get into some definitions. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm uh, Dex Desjardins. I'm a minister with the Satanic Temple. I'm a member of a, the Ordination Council, which oversees the development and administration of the ordination program, among other things. I've been working with the Satanic Temple for a long time. I was co-founder of our Albany chapter, now congregation. I worked. I was served on international council. I've just been doing, you know, various things over the past six years. Yeah. So, and and you've been part of TST way longer than I have. I think I joined in 2017, but you, you've been around. And for people who are new to this show, TST stands for the Satanic Temple. But like, you've been around since like what 2015 or 2016? Yeah, I yeah. I, I joined uh, 
the week after the unveiling, which was July 2015. Okay. Um, I, in fact, that was that was sort of the impetus for joining was learning about that event. And then, you know, I'd, I'd heard of the Satanic Temple before, but not in any real depth. Um, mm. At that point, I was already dabbling in Satanism, had been for some time, but the existing groups didn't really speak to me. And after the unveiling, and I had a chance to really look into the Satanic Temple's uh, you know, beliefs and whatnot, activities, I was like, okay, yeah, this, this seems like a cool group. And, uh, and the rest was history. Yeah, and the unveiling being the unveiling of Baphomet, is that right? The Our Baphomet statue. Yeah, when it was first yeah. unveiled in Detroit, and there was a big uh, event to celebrate. <laughs> there, is a, there is a big uh, bacchanalia to celebrate. I'd be fascinated to hear how TST in, in particular kind of intersects, how Satanism intersects with your experience of antisocial personality disorder. But before we get to that, what is antisocial personality disorder? Yeah, so antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD, as I'll probably be shortening it as we as we talk, is the clinical diagnosis uh, that's given to people who are colloquially known as psychopaths and sociopaths. So, uh, you know, psychopathy is um, not an organic disease the way that, say, you know, pancreatic cancer or or measles is. You know, there's not a specific uh, cause you can point to. There's not a specific regimen of treatment that's known to cure it. Um, or to prevent it in the first place. Uh, so when I'm talking about this, I'll be talking largely in terms of manifestations instead of symptoms. Uh, that's my own term. It's not a clinical term, but I find it applies better. So basically, you have antisocial personality disorder when over the course of many years, you exhibit certain symptoms that are defined as uh, uh, psychopathy in nature. So these are, this is including things like not experiencing emotional empathy or experiencing it to a much lower degree than other people. It involves having a shallow emotional effect or uh, just kind of a, a narrow emotional range. And I can talk more about that later as well. Hmm. Uh, it, it, it can affect uh, interpersonal relationships. So someone with ASPD is much more likely to have, you know, a, a large number of shallow sort of superficial relationships and have a lot of difficulty forming meaningful bonds with people. Uh, for some, it's impossible, and for others, it's just far more difficult. And something that's important to recognize about this, well, and this is true with a lot of uh, neurodivergencies and personality disorders, is it exists on a continuum. Uh, it's a, it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a spectrum disorder. So not everybody's affected as severely as others, and not everybody experiences it in the same way. Mm. What struck me when you came out as someone with ASPD is, and I, I will admit that this is just kind of the assumption that I had lodged in my mind was like Hannibal Lecter or, you know, a serial killer as the archetypal sociopath or psychopath or whatever. And I know you to be an incredibly good and compassionate person. And I would describe you as a very good and compassionate person, and we've worked very closely together. And I think that dissonance is what I find so fascinating because it suggests to me that the reality is very different from the assumption, <laughs> right? That the reality is very, very different, that, that real-life psychopaths are 
maybe a bit more complicated than like the cartoonish caricature that we have of them as almost like these um you know mastermind villains <laughs> does that yeah. does that make sense and oh I'm sorry, go ahead. well well and have you con- have you dealt with that stereotype since coming out like have have you confronted people assuming the worst about you because of this well so i've definitely encountered some substantial pushback some of which i could describe as being like kind of almost angry and not angry at me i I don't even know exactly how to explain it sort of like this outrage reaction where disbelief and i think it comes exactly from what you said you know you you hear about psychopathy and if you even know the term antisocial personality disorder it's usually associated with people who do you know terrible things it's it's associated with terrible behavior. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because people who have ASPD, whose manifestations land them in prison or things like that, are the ones who get studied. You know, the people who are kind of quietly existing um, and uh, are able to control the manifestations of the disorder or who just have personalities that don't lend themselves to terrible behavior in general, they, they kind of get missed, you know? So who, do, who are the study groups when they're looking at this? It's, it's serial killers. It's violent felons. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's anecdotal reports of people who are toxic in relationships. And, uh, and that's really all you hear about. And there's plenty of pop psychology books out there that reinforce these stereotypes. You know, you go on Netflix and I feel like every third show right now is is some documentary about a serial killer or something like that. And so, you know, this is this is the impression that media leaves people with. Um, and and it's true that those people do exist and they, they are part of the population of people who have uh, ASPD. But you also have and this is becoming increasingly recognized now, uh, people who are, you know, I'll use the term psychopath. It's it's sort of a colloquial term. I don't use sociopath. It's so ill-defined that it's meaningless. Um, is there a difference between those two terms, by the uh, way? Sort of. So, you know, depending on, on, on the source, there's a lot of disagreement around the nature of ASPD in the psychology and psychiatry communities. Generally speaking, and this is, you know, again, we're, we're working a lot with colloquialisms here. Uh, so sociopath is generally considered to be somebody who has picked up and learned behaviors over the course of their life frequently as a reaction to trauma or, you know, things like that. They've, they've found a way to kind of seal themselves off emotionally. They probably have a lot of other comorbidities that are contributing to uh, troubling behaviors. Uh, and the other, uh, and whereas for those who are prone to psychopathic behaviors, they tend to be more inborn. Like you can usually tell pretty early on in life that someone is functioning differently. And that's how I I generally think about this disorder as it's a different internal processing mechanism than Mm. most people have. And I can talk more about that too. So colloquially, a sociopath is developed, whereas a psychopath is born. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the thinking on it. And there's some research, there's some neurological research to back this up. And then of course, there's other uh, traits that are assigned to the two, like sociopaths are generally considered to be more explosive, less organized, have harder times presenting normally, I guess you could say, holding down jobs, holding relationships. They tend to bounce between marriages, go in and out of jail, things like that. They're more obvious. And those who uh, would colloquially be described as psychopaths are generally sort of more, they're, they're generally able to function better and to present, I guess, normally would be the term. Like, you know, people interacting with me, unless they know me very, very well, generally have no idea. But 
you know, just as much as I had pushed back when the diagnosis was revealed, those who were closest to me, we just kind of nodded. And, yeah, that, that sounds about right. And uh, <laughs> they uh, actually, it's funny. So you know, I've got I've got my uh, two partners, uh, Liana and Shalice. And uh, the first the first person that I actually broached this topic with was Liana because we lived together. And I said, uh, kind of, I, I'd been thinking about this for a while. And then one day I said, hey, do you think I'm a psychopath? And literally without even stopping to think said, oh, yeah, definitely. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty big indictment right there. Maybe this is something <laughs> worth looking into. Um, if, if, if your partners are like, yes, <laughs> without hesitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and uh, Shalice, uh, if I remember the conversation correctly, it was more kind of like, it was, it was sort of like an after the fact. Um, at this point, I'd already gone for some of the diagnostics uh, that they used to diagnose uh, ASPD and was, you know, kind of said like, yeah, I, I've seen some things where I uh, kind of could tell that you were a little different from other people. Um, in conversations I've had with other friends and family members, they've uh, talked about uh, one of the ones that comes up several times is that uh, there's a delay in emotional reaction. So um, I've, my, noti- my, I've noticed that too, by the way. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> it's fascinating. And it's, and it's a translation delay. So what's happening is uh, my emotional life is very, very shallow. There's, there's not a ton going on. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of stimulation to move the emotional needle or rattle my cage. And, uh, and that's true with most people with ASPD. And that's part of why so many of us uh, engage in high-risk thrill-seeking behavior. It's because you need something to stimulate the emotions to a point where you feel a thing and feel somewhat human. And that's been a big part of my life uh, since childhood. Uh, and they don't they don't diagnose ASPD in children. They start looking at symptoms usually around age 15 and tend not to make the diagnosis until you're uh, 18 or older. But anyway, yeah, so here's what's happening with that delayed reaction thing. I am looking at a person, I'm listening to them speak, I'm thinking about what I know about them and the context in which they're communicating with me, and I'm determining what their emotional state is. Mm. And then I have to figure out how to appropriately respond to that in a way that makes sense to the person. Because I've got basically got two options. I can sit there and be an automaton and not smile and not laugh and you know just kind of be flat and boring and, and seem uh, uncommunicative. Or I can mask, you know, just masking. You're, you're finding a way to outwardly present in a way that seems what most people would see, feel is like more naturally human. But when you have to go through a whole process of discerning emotions and figuring out what the appropriate response is, you know, do you smile? Do you frown? Do you, you know, give some half-assed chuckle at something that's said? And so there can be a little delay there. And that Mm. delay can be picked up on over time. Usually people don't notice it right away, but they start to notice the pattern after a while. And that's that's what that is. It's this delay in processing where you're going, all right, what's this person thinking? What are they feeling? Okay, what's, what's the appropriate response to this? emotion that I'm, I'm perceiving here. Uh, and a big part of that is learning uh, cognitive empathy. And if you had a chance to listen to my December 7 Temple Tuesday service, that the reason I gave that service was actually a reaction to the diagnosis. That was the impetus for it. Mm. Um, and, you know, when we talk about Satanism and how it intersects, there's a, a very, there's a place where these things collided uh, very 
very rapidly when I first joined the Satanic Temple. But anyway, so, you know, I've taught myself cognitive empathy over the years. I can, I can usually decipher a person's emotional state. I'm not sharing it with them. That's one of the big things that separates someone with, from AS, with ASPD from everyone else. I don't share in people's emotional states. If something terrible happens, I can intellectually acknowledge that. I can act with compassion toward them, but inside I'm not feeling it. And to many people, that seems just awful. I mean, for a lot of people, that's the definition of a monster is seeing someone in pain and not responding to it in a visceral, emotional way. I just don't. It's just it's just my brain works differently. And uh, but that doesn't mean I won't go out of my way to help the person. Hmm. And, and that's, I think, where one of the popular notions about ASPD falls flat is this idea that because you're emotionally different because you're not sharing in the emotions of others. Therefore, you're going to somehow be a uh, you know subpar human being or an actively bad human being. It doesn't result in Machiavellianism, in other words. It, it like doesn't equal, it doesn't necessarily equal cruelty. It can, Correct. but it doesn't necessarily. Those it, there might be a Venn diagram, but mm-hmm. there, but it one does not necessitate the other. Correct. So one of the things that's left out in a lot of uh, discussions about disabilities, mental illnesses, neurodivergencies is the existence of individual personalities. You know, we're all Mm. different Mm -hmm. and we can all have values. We can all have things we believe in and think are important. And uh, those don't necessarily have to be based off of strong emotional feeling that can be intellectual. So, Mm. you know, when I was uh, a teenager, late in my teens, it's actually probably around the age of 20, I decided that the social contract was a very important thing because I felt like if um, if we're in a society that works better, we all benefit, including me. You know, there's mm. a self-centeredness to it to a degree. So, uh, so if, just and I am so sorry to interrupt. So, but was that process a so it it was self-interested, which of course it was. I mean, of all I won't say all, but many of our moral choices have some measure of self-interest in them. And that's true of like everyone, in my opinion. I think a lot of our moral choices are self-interested to some degree. Maybe not all of them. Altruism does exist. But it sounds like you're also saying that there was an element of this is also good for other people. So there was a consideration for other people even if you can't necessarily mirror your their interior emotional experiences. Is am I right about that? Absolutely. Okay. And uh, and we do this cross species all the time. We do not share the exact same emotional life with animals, generally speaking. You know, I mean, sure, your you know your cat can be sad or happy, but it's not the same exact thing as what a person experiences. I'm pretty sure. And mm. yet we can act with compassion toward animals, you know, or whatever. I mean, I know people who put googly eyes in their toaster and they're like, don't fuck with Fred. I'll kill you. You know? And, and that's, you know, <laughs> you're, you're describing my relationship with my cats and, and actually, okay. You putting it that way is really clarifying because it's like, yes, of course I can, you know, look at one of my six cats and see distress. I can see distress and I have to decide, you know, and, and, you know, there, there are times when I have to take my cat to the vet and, but it takes a while to, for me to figure out that they're in distress and it's like, okay, they're doing this behavior. I have to figure out what's going on because I want the best for them. But because I can't, just because I can't relate to 
their specific kind of pain. I don't understand it. I can't feel it. Doesn't mean that I don't care deeply for them and I want them to be better. Is that like a, would you say that is a good way of articulating what it's like? Yeah, I think, I think it's about as close as I can come to a parable that makes sense. And not to say that we are comparing you or anyone to cats, but, no. but I mean, it, it's a, it, you know, all metaphors have their limitations, but yeah, a, like that makes sense. Like you can care deeply for some, for someone, but that doesn't mean that you, sh- that, that you can reflect or mirror their inner landscape. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you have to find a way to, to communicate, to show compassion, mm. um, to, to find an understanding that works for you. So I think that's the best metaphor I can come up with for it. That's fast. That that's that's so helpful. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, as far as as far as you know, going back to um, stereotypes and and you know, again, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. A lot of people with ASPD are diagnosed because they're in prison for you know sometimes very bad things, mm-hmm. um, uh, up to and including serial killers. Though you know, we can come back to that later and talk about how the fact that. In many cases, it's it, it's it's the opposite. In many cases, it is a person's capacity for emotion and their capacity for emotional empathy that drives them sometimes to unbelievable violence. So you know, there's mm-hmm. there's not a one to one correlation at all. So I think what the the important thing to understanding ASPD and how it manifests in different people is that if you are a person who is already by your personality prone to disliking people. You know, you're prone to violence, you're an angry, aggravated, you know, malcontent, or you've got crossed wiring and you associate violence with sexuality. The problem with ASPD then is the natural breaks that your brain would put on you to stop you from doing terrible things are either broken or malfunctioning. And so what those things are, you know, empathy for others, guilt, remorse, impulse control, fear of consequences. And those are the things that for those with ASPD are, are missing or are malfunctioning somehow. So it's easier to engage in really terrible behavior if that's what you're prone to if you have ASPD. The big five personality features, things like agreeableness, disagreeableness, introversion, extroversion, uh, neuroticism, et cetera, et cetera. I forget all of them. But it's like whatever personality makeup that you have that can compel you towards you know being more quarrelsome or whatever more aggressive or whatever so you could have a very agreeable psychopath (laughs) you could have a very agreeable or you could have a very disagreeable psychopath like you could have different configurations of of personalities is that what i'm hearing you say yeah yeah basically um so it kind of you know, so for me, manifestations uh, historically have included things like when I was younger, we're talking about here, uh, behavior that was criminal in nature. Like I was shoplifting by the time I was five, uh, like <laughs> habitually. Wow. Yeah. And and got caught every single time and it never dissuaded me. And so hmm. you've got two different things going on there. You've got the impulse control issues that, you know, for a lot of people, they'd say, oh, I really want this thing, but I'm not going to steal it my brain's telling me that's a bad thing to do. You know, you've got the internal breaking mechanism that's like, no, stop, don't do the thing. Well, if that's malfunctioning, especially if you're young, you're a child or a teenager, then it's easier to engage in those kinds of high-risk behaviors. And then, of course, one of the other things that's often missing uh, for folks with ASPD or is greatly reduced is fear. I am, uh, as one therapist put it, 
have a pathological lack of fear of physical danger. I'm literally not afraid of anything. And as a result, my body is a a carnival of scars and burns and implants and prostheses. You're, I you're mean, kind of a, a like a, a you're kind of a Frankenstein. It's kind of awesome. Like you're a you're like a bionic man. Like <laughs> you have you showed me like your iPod that connects to your spine and <laughs> like all kinds of amazing shit. Oh yeah, I've got plates and screws in one hand. I've got screws in my wrist. Yep. There's a prosthesis in my nose. My front teeth are all fake. I mean, you know, and this happened because I have habitually in my life engaged in uh, high risk behaviors uh, that, you know, carried uh, substantial amounts sometimes of uh, personal danger. And I just didn't care. Hmm. I wasn't afraid of in the moment. And I didn't worry. I didn't think ahead about consequences. There was no fear of consequences. So if I'd get injured, I'd just be like, oh, whatever, you know, I'll hmm. do it again. No problem. And, uh, you know, when in, in the more recent work that's been done, uh, studying uh, uh, psychopathy specifically. And by psychopathy, I'm talking about personality traits that accumulate to this kind of colloquial idea of a psychopath. It's, it's not a, a clinical diagnosis, as I said before. We're starting to find successful surgeons tend to be psychopaths. Yes. A lot of leaders, successful leaders tend to, tend to be psychopaths. Uh, you know, I've had to do work in TST where I had to fire very good friends from yeah. positions that were incredibly meaningful to them. And they had breakdowns and stuff like that. And I rolled my eyes and sighed heavily because I was having to hear them make mouth sounds and stuff. And, <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's it's not the kindest uh, mindset. And I recognize that. But it made me very effective and mm. made me very fair as a leader. And people I um, absolutely can't stand would come to me for help in TST matters. And I would give them help because mm. I'm not like emotionally invested in this. It's just like, OK, this is my job. This person needs this. I'm going to help them you know, to the extent that I'm able to uh, stunt people, you know, who just do things that are going to probably get them killed. Chances are they have some, uh, you know, psychopathy going on in their brains mm-hmm. as well. And, and so, you know, and, and actors too. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that these personality traits in a person who's not fundamentally violent or, or in some other way, terrible. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can it can bring certain very strong uh, benefits. So, like for me, you, you know, I'm I'm sort of a outgoing, friendly person in general. So, not having any inhibitions, you know, has made allowed me to be basically a social butterfly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm very good at that. I'm very good at cultivating uh, at least sort of superficial friendships, um, and uh, you know, having people around who I respect and whose company I enjoy. And uh, if I was a shyer person, if I worried about things like other people's thoughts on me and stuff like that, that would probably be a lot harder to do. Hmm. What got you interested in being tested for antisocial personality disorder? I have known for a very long time that I process the world differently from most people. Hmm. And this was very apparent in my school days where really the only way I fit in for a very long time was with other social misfits and juvenile delinquents, you know, people who basically were, you know, risk-taking uh, ne'er-do-wells, which I was, and, and, then, and then growing up and just kind of realizing more and more as time went on that I was having to work within the world and with people I know differently from how they seem to be interacting with each other. And it got a little lonely for a while because I started to wonder, you know, am I 
it's like FOMO. Like, am I missing out on all these amazing, rich experiences that other people are sharing together? Is my definition of friendship the same as other people's? Is my definition of love what most other people mean? And not knowing the answer to that. And well, to a degree, I do know the answer. And the answer to a degree is I am missing out on a lot of stuff. You know, there's people sharing feelings and experiences on a very deep, deep, meaningful level that I miss out on. And I can, I can fake it. You know, I can, I can do my best. I can have my version of that, but I know that it's different uh, from, from what most other people are, are experiencing. So there was this kind of this confluence of different streams of thought I was having and conversations with people. I think the first person, you know, I can actually tell you exactly when it was a very good long-term friend of mine. Uh, we were talking about something and they literally used the word psychopathy in describing parts of my personality. And it was the first time I'd ever actually heard the word spoken out loud in that context. So that's kind of, I guess, what got the ball rolling most immediately. And this happened, I think, back in like the uh, spring of 2021. So th this is all kind of unfolded pretty rapidly, you know, had other conversations with friends and family and, uh, you know, they were all kind of, of, of at least a similar mind. They weren't all using the same terminology, but so definitely this idea that, you know, something was different, hmm. you know, that you know, I tend to speak with a bit of a monotone. I, my face doesn't emote much uh, rigid body language and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, people just noticed, you know, the, the, the people have said I have callous humor which is why I tend to only use self-depreciatory humor these days because I don't know. I love make, your it, callous humor all personally. Like I, I adore it, but anyway, we can go on. <laughs> well, thank you. I, but you know, at a certain point I realized that things that I thought were funny were hurtful to other people. And, mm. uh, and this is where that not sharing in the emotional reality uh, can, can bite you in the ass and uh, people think you're a dickhead. So when I realized and, and this was a big problem in my 20s, and I kind of got uh, a handle on it by, uh, by my late 20s, that I just can't joke about other people because it's not going to come across well. I'm going to be hurtful. And it's not because I just like the person. It's just that I wouldn't react the way they're reacting. My emotional life is different. Things that wouldn't phase me can be deeply hurtful to other people. So I just have to avoid those topics completely because my attempts to be lighthearted and funny, <laughs> when it comes to other people, flop very hard most of the time. So I don't joke around about other people as much as I can avoid it. That's uh, so interesting because you just have like a, a different emotional, social makeup. And so things that wouldn't bother you at all if they were joked, if they were joked about are deeply hurtful to other people is what I'm yeah. hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. And it works both ways. It's not just uh, with negative things. So a couple of really good examples of how my emotional innards work. I had a girlfriend back in uh, uh, toward the end of high school. And um, and we broke up and it was fine. We remained friends afterward. We had a large mutual friends group. And uh, so we saw each other quite frequently in uh, non-romantic settings. And it was good. You know, we, we got along really well. And then she died and uh, she, she was uh, hiking with a friend and she uh, fell off a cliff and died. And I got this news uh, that she had died. And I said, well, how did it happen? And they told me this horrific thing. And I said, oh, and uh, and that was it. And they were like, oh, you know, like, where's the rest of the response? I'm like, I, that's all I got, friends. Like, you know, it stinks mm. that this person that I liked is gone. I'll, I'll miss them. But that was as far as the emotional needle moved. Mm. Now, conversely, I was unemployed for a period in my 30s. It was brutal. I mean, it was brutal. I lost a, a, a very good job over budget cuts and 
uh, found myself basically unhirable in the field in which my expertise was. So I was, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, the lights had been turned off in my apartment. I was a month away from homelessness. And I get a call from my former employer and they're like, we found a bunch of money. We'd like you back. So I'm, uh, I get this call while I'm sitting in a bar with a, a friend. And I, you know, I take the phone call and I hang it up. And my friend says, uh, what was that? And I said, oh, I got my job back. And he's staring at me. And I'm like, what? He's like, aren't you going to react? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, oh yeah. All right. Wow. Great. You know, now I'm not going to be homeless next month, you know, but there was, there was just huh. no budging. The, the needle just didn't move. So when that's your reality where big, big, mm. big things like that, just kind of, you know, just roll right off you, it can be very easy to miscalibrate how behaviors will affect other people emotionally. And so, you know, how, how do, how do you deal with this? If that's, if that's your emotional life, well, you, you, you get into risky behaviors, you're promiscuous, you, you go out and, you know, perform stupid stunts you shouldn't do. You uh, uh, like riding on top of subways, which I love to do when I lived in New York City, you know, because mm -hmm. it, it was good. It was a nice thrill. I'm riding over the Manhattan Bridge on top of the uh, whatever it was, the J train, I think, you know, <laughs> and ducking under uh, girders and stuff. <laughs> Trying not like, to be decapitated. Yeah, you know, and, and things time. like that. Yeah, or, or, you know, having several score of sexual partners by your mid-20s, things like that. Yeah. Um, and these are, you know, they're ways of, or today, like today, uh, like really extreme emotional kink play that would crush most people mm -hmm. makes me smile. You know, oh, the needle's moving. You know, this is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's easy to get into trouble when you need that kind of stimulation. So do some things move the needle more than others? Like, like what, what moves the needle for you? And are there some things that move the needle more than others? Like it does, does humor move the needle for you versus tragedy versus like what, what, what does and doesn't move the needle or is it all just kind of have to be at the same loud volume to move it? So something, you know, uh, I don't get, uh, too personal, but there's certain like kink plays I indulge in at times that do the job mm -hmm. uh, that believe me for most people would, and it's, you know, mental, emotional stuff. It's not like, you know, whips and chains that for most people would just, I mean, they wouldn't even consider it, you know, and mm. for me, I'm just like, oh, this is cool. You know, wow. I'm feeling something neat. Hmm. So there's that. Uh, my dad died. You know, that was a crushing blow to me. Uh, I felt that one uh, very, very strongly, probably more than more than most things I've experienced. And I can form tight, emotionally strong bonds uh, and, and, you know, loving bonds like I have with my partners. And, you know, interactions with them affect me very differently from interactions with most other people. And, hmm. you know, even, even with them, like if one of them's crying, I'm probably not feeling what they're feeling. I can recognize it. I can respond to it appropriately. I can you know, display compassion. I can try to, you know, make them feel better and fix the problem. Even in those cases, I think it's a somewhat different experience than what most people would have. Uh, but I do, you know, loving interactions with them does definitely move the needle. So it, there's, it's very complicated. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It, and so you are part of an organization committed to compassion and empathy and to you know serving humanity and the outsider i think that a lot of people would look at the organization that you're in which is the satanic temple 
and then look at your diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder and be like and and have the assumption that there is a fundamental conflict there. And I don't think that there is. But in your words, why isn't there a conflict between, you know, being having some, you know, being someone with antisocial personality disorder who, who verse, you know, while also being in an organization that is about serving humanity and and creating a better world and, uh, you know, pursuing the, the religious principles of, of compassion and empathy, showing compassion towards all creatures in accordance with reason. Um how do those things gel for you? Because I feel like to a lot of people listening, they won't. In fact, uh, one of the first things that happened after I became actively involved in TST. So before the Albany chapter existed, uh, I was a member of the New York City chapter. It was the closest one to me. And I would go to every meeting mm. uh, on a monthly basis, you know, 150 mile drive each way. And uh, one of the very first conversations I had was around the topic of empathy because already at that point I was very well aware that I did not I don't really have uh, much of a capacity for emotional empathy it's not completely without but it's close enough uh, and I had this discussion with members of the old New York City chapter uh, which largely folded you know a couple years later and now is rebuilt uh, largely with new people but anyway uh, and the discussion I had with them back then was, well, empathy and compassion, great, but what if you can't? Like, what if, what do we mean by empathy basically became the conversation? Mm. And, uh, you know, some people responded to that very, um, you know, with curiosity, with open mindedness. And we talked about different manifestations of empathy. You know, I didn't have the terms emotional and cognitive empathy in my vocabulary yet. So I called them hot and cold empathy. Mm. And hot empathy was like, you know, uh, passion, strong emotion. Um, sharing and emotional experiences and cold empathy, as I was calling it, is what, you know, I now know is cognitive empathy. It's thinking through and determining appropriate responses to emotional stimuli of others uh, and knowing how to interact with them in positive ways, even if you're not feeling what they're feeling. And so basically the conversation ended up in a place of, you know, sure, cold empathy or cognitive empathy uh, is good enough. Uh, but there was a conflict early on that I was kind of like, oh, shit, can I can I do that first tenet? Hmm. You know, uh, and the answer, I think, is yes. And compassion is an action more yes. than anything else. Absolutely. Compassion is what you do. And you don't really need to have any particular internal mechanism at play to to display compassion. Hmm. You can do that even if you actively hate the person you're showing compassion toward. You know, that's just alleviating people's distress. Yes. Um, so, you know, I figured between the cognitive empathy uh, and and the ability to exercise compassion that I would I would not fundamentally have a conflict with the tenets of the Satanic Temple, and I think my experiences have borne that out very well. Um, you know, I've, there's certainly people in TST, current and former, who are not fans of me, and that's okay. But I don't think any of them can say that I'm cruel or you know that I uh, treat people badly. Um, I've heard that I'm very cold. I had someone describe me as sinister once. Um, <laughs> which, which I thought was actually very insightful because what was happening was they were seeing past the mask. They were seeing that there was something else at play here besides what was being outwardly uh, mm. displayed. And they mm. assumed that that meant that I was up to something nefarious. So while I, while I appreciate the cleverness of recognizing that there was masking going on, 
they were incorrect in assuming that that meant that I was up to no good because you know that then you're just you're just heaping your prejudices onto someone's diagnosis basically. Hmm. You know. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Go on. No. No. You go ahead. Well, I've been thinking a lot about all of this lately, actually, since reading reading your work and reading your posts online and whatnot, and I I would typify myself as an intensely emotionally empathetic person and it that has not necessarily been a good thing for me honestly and and so I feel like I am actually intensely aware of the pitfalls of, of empathy and I think that if we emphasize emotional empathy too much then all we're going to do is just fall down our biases. We are more likely, on average, to feel emotional empathy for people who look like us, who have our skin color, who are who speak the same language as us, who share the same political views as us. I mean, our empathy, our emotional empathy works along tribal lines. And I have been intensely aware of that within myself, where I am a deeply empathetic person, but I'm I'm aware of of how limited my empathy actually is. And I've realized that the antidote to that is what you call cognitive empathy. It's like it doesn't matter or and even and even beyond that, even beyond cognitive empathy, simply compassion. It doesn't matter how I feel about a person. The right thing to do is to act compassionately towards them. If someone needs food, we give them food. It doesn't matter if I relate to this person or not. It, you know, and and I so often sometimes feel like we are by we I mean, you know, kind of good-hearted progressives almost doing this emotional blackmail that's that is like you know you know get up those good feelings of compassion of get up those good feelings of empathy for people so that you can act but the problem with that is that empathy as a feeling is unbelievably unreliable and instead the thing to do is to just do the right thing act compassionately people across the world who need our help or in our or the homeless people the uh, the unhoused people in our own neighborhood it doesn't matter if we relate to them they need our help period end of story so let's give it to them you know and so i I've, I've been thinking a lot about this and i think that there is an innate conflict that comes up because part of christianity is so much a part of our culture well in in the uh, sermon on the mount jesus t- says if you so much as lust after another woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. If you, you know, have hateful thoughts towards your brother, you're guilty of murdering your brother. So it's like from the very beginning, a lot of the teachings of Christ d- removed the barrier between your thoughts and your inner life and your outward life. And I think that that is just a catastrophe. And it's like, no, thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings or lack thereof or just lack thereof. What matters is how we behave. And this conflation of 
thought and feeling and action the way Christ conflated them to basically say, you know, we're all sinful and and full of shit. It has catas- I, I think that it it actually makes it harder for us to do the right thing. I think that makes it harder for us to be good people, meaning to behave in a just manner. I don't know if what I just said makes any sense, but these are the things that I have been processing and thinking about while reading your stuff online. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, people conflate the uh, emotional empathy with with being a good person, with doing the right thing. And it's it's just a false dichotomy. And it's just not be, true. It's, it's just, just not true. It is just not true. I, I, th- I think that some, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like some of the most intensely gross people I know are also some of the most deeply empathetic. But the, the reason is because empathy is highly mis, mis, emotional empathy is highly misguided. I think it's valuable to try to learn where other people are coming from, to cognitively understand what other people are going through. It's like we can do that even if sometimes that emotional experience is is far from us, but we can try to understand it. And that to me is what that's what you are saying when you talk about cognitive empathy. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Cool. It's it's the it's the active thinking through and processing and and you know, determining how to appropriately respond to the emotional states of others. And you don't have to like the person to do it. And, you know, as you, as you said, basically, uh, emotional empathy is biased. It's heavily biased. Yes. You know, it, it, it encourages people to support their friends, those who are similar to them, uh, and to uh, dismiss or even demonize people who are different. You know, I mentioned before that uh, empathy and, and emotion can lead to some of the worst behavior you can imagine. And that's absolutely true. A lot yes. of it's out of misguided empathy. You know, the feeling of loyalty to white one's... nationalism, white nationalism, oh, sure. it white, like white nationalism is empathy on steroids mm-hmm. because it is intense empathy with the quote unquote right white race to the degree of being unable to connect meaningfully with anyone of any other skin color but that's those are the lines that our natural empathy works along it biases us towards people who are like us yeah absolutely it does um i had a thought and i lost oh i'm sorry i interrupted that's okay i think that a lot of people would hear this conversation and would be like okay but where does the impulse to do good come from if you don't feel the the heartbreak of another human being the way others do or or to the level to the extent that others do if you don't feel that then where does the impulse to do good come from why follow the seven tenets why strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason so without a lot of people might be listening to this and be like okay well without emotional empathy where does the impulse to be good, how can you be good without that? Well, there's no reason emotion has to drive any of those things. Intellect can, mm. uh, you know, values you hold can. Mm. Uh, so I saw, I talked about the social contract earlier and, uh, you know, I strongly believe that's true. I, I think if we had a world where there was less suffering and less greed, uh, that all of us, myself included, would benefit highly from that. It would be less stressful. Um, you know, uh, people hmm. would be, I think, less in, uh, 
inclined to criminal activity in general, because I mean, most, most, you know, theft and things like that are caused by poverty, you know, not by being a bad person or, or other factors. So I can recognize the importance of doing good things in the world, even if I'm not feeling it. I don't, I don't need to have an emotional connection to understand that something's the right thing to do. And, hmm. uh, and, and I think that's frightfully hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, even though I think they do it all the time and just don't realize it. Yes, I and, agree. I, I 100% agree. Sorry, go on. So um, an example of, of, you know, where, where this fails because it does sometimes. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I would not recommend ASPD to anybody. It's a, it's an isolating thing. It, it makes it much easier to get into trouble. You know, you're missing out on a lot of uh, fundamental human experiences and uh, they're, 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 you cannot replicate those things. Uh, fully. So I decided one day that part of my social contract work uh, would be to volunteer for hospice because, and, and this is literally a thought process. I was like, well, someday I'm going to die and it's, it might suck. You know, the process of, I don't fear death. I don't care about it. It's irrelevant. You know, if I stop to exist, I won't exist to be aware of it. So who cares? Uh, but uh, the process of getting there could suck. Uh, it often does, you know, cancer or whatnot, and, you know, who knows how it's going to happen. And in those times of, of suffering and fear, you'd hope that there's someone who's there to help to alleviate that. I want that. I want to have that palliative care if it's needed. And so I'm like, well, and I've always had a strong work ethic. So I was like, well, it's one of those things where, you know, if I'm not willing to do it, then who, who is? And the answer, and that was a very stupid thought, it turns out. Uh, so I volunteered for hospice and it was in hospital settings. So I'm hanging out with terminally ill patients who have got hours left. I mean, I was watching people die left and right. And, uh, you know, like three or four a week, which is, believe me, plenty. Um, and some of them were dying very terribly. I was terrible as a hospice volunteer. I just couldn't do it. And that's one of those places <laughs> I don't where the mean, emotional... I don't mean to laugh. I'm so sorry. But, but oh, yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> and, and that's one of those things where you just, if you do not have lots of emotional empathy, don't be a hospice volunteer for God's sake, go do literally <laughs> any other thing. I was just God awful. But, the only, the but, only patient I think yeah, I yes, actually go on, go on. had any helped at all was someone who I think was a lot like me. They just wanted to do drugs and curse a lot while they died. And, and you're uh, like, Hey brethren. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And it was fun. We, we had a piece of cake. It was his birthday. He died later that night. Aww. Um, yeah, but uh, and then again, I was like, oh, all right, well, you know, guess I'll call the nurse and, you know, didn't, didn't think any more about it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and then that's one of those things where people are like, oh, you're a little cold hearted. Well, I guess. But, you know, it's not because I wanted ill on the guy. I just don't ex share this emotional experience. But it's also worth pointing out you were there to be with him. I was I was it, trying my best. It might be cold hearted. I mean, people could call it cold hearted, but you were also the one they're eating cake with him on his last day. Like you were doing your yep. best, right? But also, no, that, that makes complete sense that like if you're a hospice worker, you might want to have a, a broader, you know, emotional yes. range. However, what you described just before that is literally like the golden rule. Like, well, I don't want to be alone when I die. So I won't, I'll be there for other people when they die. Like that is that's yeah. literally like the golden rule, like one of the underlying most ancient principles of re of religion and morality, <laughs> like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Yeah. And and so you can and, and, you know, you were just talking about how a lot of people engage in a moral way 
or or are concerned about things even if they don't feel them. I think we all do that to to mm-hmm. a certain degree, right? Like sure. There are causes that matter to me not because I feel them but because I just know they matter. I know that unhoused issues matters. I I don't feel it. I can't feel it. I it's so I have been housed my entire life. It's hard for me to empathize. That's okay. I don't need to empathize in order to act on it. Same with same with certain social issues that are just so huge, it's hard to grasp. Like if like climate change. The consequences of climate change are going to be so gargantuan and so far reaching. If you sit around waiting to feel empathy about all of the horrible shit that's going to happen, you'll never stop. You you will never you'll never be able to get off the ground and you know pull yourself up off of the ground and actually get work done to mitigate that harm right like there's some yeah. there's some problems that are just so huge that you can't even like it's a failed effort to try to emotionally contain it yeah here's here's another way of thinking about it when when you're training to be a doctor or you know an emergency medical technician or anything like that yeah. you know where you are you are basically the pinnacle of compassion you know you are working to save a person's life uh, to cure their illnesses to reduce their pain what's one of the first things they teach clinical detachment yes they teach you clinical detachment because you need to be able to make hard decisions you can't be paralyzed by how sad you are about a, a person's situation you have to be able to distance yourself from that and act and i think that's part of why uh you know they, they're finding more and more that a lot of surgeons have uh you know high degrees of of psychopathy Um, Hmm. and it helps to make them successful. Uh, I would probably be a very good emergency medical technician. I've never done it. I was a firefighter though. And I was super good at that. You know, I could make hard, fast (laughs) decisions in dangerous situations. Whereas someone like me, whereas someone like me would just freeze. Like I, I would just be in like in the corner crying like covered in blood in this just like unable to function no but like you know what you're talking about really reminds me of my partner i don't talk about my family much but my on on the show but my partner uh works in suicide prevention the shit that he sees unspeakably horrific and he is incredibly good at it and one of the reasons he's incredibly good at it is because of that detachment that you're talking about where it's like you can you can be 100% present in the moment to this person. And then when it's done, it's done and you move on to the next thing. And, you know, among all the social and because, you know, my partner is a social worker. I hang out with a lot of social workers here in this area. Like our friends group is all social workers who work in just unspeakably horrific conditions. I mean, they they are going into settings that are just unbelievably hard and what makes them good at it is the ability to be 100% present to the suffering in front of them and mitigating that suffering. And then when it's not in front of them, it's out of their mind and they can go on to the next thing and be as completely effective as they can. And, and we might interpret that as cold hearted, but at the end of the day, it's alleviating suffering. Like it's, it's making the world a better place as a result. Yeah. 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 And, in, in some in some in some settings, uh, it can be a superpower. Yes, you know? and then in other settings, not so much, like you described yeah, exactly. in, in hospice. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It, 
It can absolutely be a superpower. And, and you know, what I think this draws, what, what this kind of brings home for me is that there are, there are just, you know, there is not one single ideal type of human being. There are so many different types of human beings on this planet, and, and we all have different attributes, and some of us are really fucking weird. And there is give and take. There, there is, there is, there is, um, there is a, a what's the what's the term that I'm looking for? Uh, there, there's a give and take in different situations for those different attributes, and that's fine. That's okay. And if anywhere, Satanism is the best place to explore that. Like, we can all be weird. We can all be neurodivergent. And that's fantastic. Um, you know, we can, we can kind of understand that different types of people have different strengths and shortcomings in different situations. And that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to hear about how this diagnosis actually happens? I would love to hear that. All right. So... In my case, I sought this out because I sort of had an inkling of where things were going to go based mm. on the conversations I've been having. And just, you know, I, I tend to be a self-reflective person. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, honest about my foibles and stuff like that. And I was curious. I, I just wanted to know. Um, and to a degree, it was very liberating because mm. when you're not sure why your experience is so different and or why people are thinking of you as being different, it, it can, you know, it's a little obnoxious. It can, it can be very um, alarming at times. So uh, usually people find out cause they're in prison and someone's like, Oh my God, what's going on with this person? You know, uh, cause they've, they've done something terrible. And, and that goes back again to where the stereotypes come from mm. and the stereotypes exist for a reason. It's because, you know, like I said, if, if you have bad tendencies, ASPD makes it very easy to indulge them. Because you, you're you're not experiencing emotional empathy, you don't have the uh, inhibitions most people would have. Uh, you don't experience uh, remorse, which is something I can talk about later as well. So it's easier to be a shithead uh, if that's if that's how you're inclined to behave. Um, so in my case, I sought it out myself. I went to my therapist because I, I have uh, bipolar too as well, and have been treated for that since uh, 2012. And uh, so I, you know I've had a long time relationship with a, a therapist. And um, I went in and I, I just kind of asked, I was like, you know, you, you've known me for a while. You've worked with me in this clinical setting. Do you think there's anything else going on besides just bipolar? And they were kind of like, well, you know, you, you certainly have a you know, shallow emotional effect and uh, talk about certain things very flippantly that most people would really struggle with. It's like, all right, well, you know, what do we, where do we go from here? Is there anything, there's like a, a diagnostic tool or anything we can run? Um, and the answer was yes, there's, there's a couple of different instruments that are used uh, to diagnose psychopathy or ASPD. And th it's not just those things alone. It's a multifaceted uh, uh, process to arrive at that diagnosis. Uh, so the actual diagnostic instruments are the, uh, the, the PCLR and um, the, the, I don't actually know how you pronounce it. It's, it's spelled like TRI-PM. Um, and I'm trying to remember... What? So, so these are like diagnostic tests, like questionnaires yes. that you take. Yeah, is one yeah, of them are... the is one of them the hair? Yes. The the which one is the hair test? The hair the hair psycho uh, psychopathy checklist revised the PCLR. That was okay. The first that's one. That's the first one. Okay, got it. Yeah, and so they're they're looking for things like um, uh, abnormal amounts of fearlessness, disinhibition, narrow emotional band, 
mm. uh, lack of empathy or remorse, risk, uh, a history of impulsive risk-taking behavior, uh, promiscuity, adventurousness, substance abuse, and a lot of these things fit me very strongly. You know, I, as you may know, I'm actually in recovery from alcoholism right now. Yes. And, you know, that's that's very common of uh, people, ASPD, to have uh, substance abuse issues, sometimes for self-medication reasons, sometimes because of impulse control, and sometimes for thrill-seeking or some combination, or sometimes you're just addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a combination. So, I was, I, you know, I was kind of a party animal uh, way too late in life. Um, I love drinking. I love being drunk. Were you were you the were you the guy who had always come back for the frat boy parties like 20 years after you graduated? Was that you? Were you that guy? Oh, thank God. No, Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, no, no. I I don't. I've I've got other stuff going on, too, and I get sensory overload very badly. So I try to avoid uh, parties in general. Um, When we we recently had a a little private event up in Salem uh, for a friend of ours and there was there was a few more people there than I was ready for, and we actually took the library headquarters and made it into a quiet space. It was just lit by some artificial candles, and the rule was you only go in there to sit quietly if you get overloaded. And myself and a couple others spent you know a substantial amount of time in there just chilling in the dark and not saying anything because that we sounds, need to bring ourselves down. That sounds like the best party ever. It was really it was it was necessary. Otherwise, <laughs> I would have had to like go outside and stamp around a lot uh-huh. um, and, and just be unfriendly. And and I did become unfriendly as the, as the, as the first few days there went on and mm-hmm. got actually pretty uh, actively uh, unfriendly towards some people I like quite a bit in TST, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in person, like with them. And I uh, wish I hadn't, but there's nothing I can do about it now. I did, I did apologize to them because I recognized that this was not how I should have behaved. Hey, um, and, which is, which is all like for real i'm just bringing back bringing it back to actions are what matter yeah and that's that cognitive empathy you know you exactly you, you recognize you've done a thing that's hurt a person and you can go oh well that tough shit hmm. and i didn't feel guilty for it i just didn't you know i just didn't want this person to think or these couple people to think i disliked them i didn't want them to feel mm-hmm. bad so i mm-hmm. took the the time to go and actively speak to them. And that's that cognitive empathy. You recognize uh, an emotional state, you calibrate a appropriate response, and then you act on it. That's that's the whole point of it. Hmm. And then show that compassion. Hmm. Uh, and I don't have to have an emotional investment in it to do that. Absolutely. So, so I, yeah, so I sit down, I take the, uh, the, the, the PCLR, the one you'd mentioned, which is a, you know, a series of questions that are basically phrased in a way to elicit how you would behave in certain circumstances. Uh, and then the other one is the triarchic psychopathy measure, or the, as I call it, the trip M. It's probably tri PM. I have no idea. And it's sort of a similar uh, thing. They're, you know, they're psychometric instruments. Uh, the one you can do yourself, the, the, the tri PM, you can take online. It's free and, and it's self scored and anybody can do it. And, it. and it can be probably fun to do and see, you know, just how, how much of a psychopath you are because everyone's got some level of these things huh. like i said it exists on a spectrum i want to do that uh what is it called again? uh uh it's called the triarchic psychopathy measure or t-r-i-p-m capital t lowercase r-i capital p capital m p-m amazing if you search for it online you'll find it yeah it's very easy to take i'll do it and then in our next meeting i'll i'll tell you my results i'll tell you how much of a psychopath i am perfect yeah so and the hair 
uh, the hair psychopathy checklist revised, the PCLR, is uh, much more complicated, and that has to be scored by a highly trained uh, clinician. You cannot you cannot self-administer that one, and you cannot cannot self-score that one. There's complicated hmm. uh, algorithms that go into the scoring of it, and uh, and then and then and there's those, but that on the that on its own, that's not the diagnosis. Then there's also a comp- like a extensive social history that's needed. They look at you know criminal records if you have one. I don't. Uh, they have, uh, uh, you know, they look at your other uh, mental health history and, it, and, and then the diagnosis is made on the basis of a combination. And part of it is not just that you have these inner workings, you also have to have acted in certain ways. So you have to have ha- done the promiscuity, not just wanted it, have to have done the shoplifting or, or the risk-taking things or actively violated the rights of others if that's, you know, the type of person you are. And, uh, and, and the diagnosis is made based on that and the combination of those various hmm. things. Does it ever, you've talked to some, and we, we should wrap this up soon, we're, we're reaching time, but does it ever get lonely? And if so, oh, yeah. what is that loneliness like? If you could describe it, I know that that's 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 probably too broad to be helpful. Let me see if I can like. No, it, it okay. isn't. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. You know, when when you when you see people having uh, interactions that are deep and meaningful on an emotional level, and you can't partake in those in an authentic way, you know, your options are either just to fake it, and I try not to do that. I try not. I try to have authentic relationships, even if they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you can't partake in those, just like any other thing, you know, you, you feel like you're missing out. You know, you, you wonder, are your friendships real friendships? Are your relationships what everyone else means by them? And, you know, I can tell you that I have a couple of very strong friendships and, of course, my actual intimate relationships that are I experience profoundly differently from most other ones. So I know what it's like to uh, have strong emotional bonds. You know, I do experience emotions. They're just turned way down hmm. mm-hmm. and it's much, much harder to create those bonds. And, you know, so a lot of people are able to make friends uh, very deeply, very easily uh, where they're strongly emotionally connected. They miss them terribly when they're not around and, you know, experience their pain and stuff like that. And that's, that's usually not my case. You know, if I'm away from Liana for an extended period, I miss her. I'm frequently away from Shalise for long periods of time and I miss her terribly, you know, and, uh, but for most people, that's not the case. It just, it just isn't even, even friends of mine I've had since I was in my early twenties, I will go for months or years without seeing them. And it's kind of like, just doesn't really matter that much. And I'm happy to see them when they come back, mm-hmm. but it's not an emotional reaction one way or the other. It's just kind of, uh, blah. And yeah, that, that, that's isolating. Mm-hmm. It gets lonely. You, you, there are times where I wish it was, a very different experience, but it's not. And, you know, there's some evidence that there's uh, an actual physical difference in the brain of people uh, with ASPD. There's uh, 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 often on uh, PET scans, uh, dark areas in the spot where the frontal, the prefrontal cortex and I can't remember what the fucking other parts called them. I don't know. It starts with an A and an M. I don't know brain words. Or I'm well. not remembering right now. I, yeah, I'm normally on top of my brain words, but I'm I'm forgetting that one. It, it basically the part that regulates emotion and the part that regulates inhibition. The amygdala. Amygdala. That's it. Yeah. Yep. yep. So on a lot of on, on the on the PET scans of a lot of uh, people who are diagnosed with psychopathy or ASPD, uh, those areas are dark hmm. to various degrees. There's just not much going on there, and that's and that's increasingly become 
uh, known in neuroscience that, you know, there is an actual physical difference in the brains of certain people. So it's not a thing you can counsel somebody out of necessarily or, or medicate away. Mm-hmm. And I've, I have uh, uh, applied for a study, actually, that will, if I get into it, would include a PET scan to look for that exact uh, physiological occurrence. Hmm. I think that when a lot of people hear the word psychopath or sociopath or less commonly antisocial personality disorder, they assume kind of this, for lack of a better term, like almost like a vampire, like something inhuman Mm -hmm. who does not need someone who is inhuman, who does not who does not have a need for human connection. Mm-hmm. the same the 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 need for human contact and it sounds like you still crave or you still want human connection maybe just in a different way and maybe you don't have as as ready access to it but you still want it am i hearing that correctly yeah i think so and you know even if you're talking about psychopaths who are just terrible like you know you're you're jeffrey dahmer for example right I mean, gay I, I icon, say, honestly. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I don't think anyone would argue he wasn't a psychopath. You know? Absolutely. I mean, just, 100% just, a psychopath. I mean, as Hannibal Lecter as you can basically come in real life, I think. Yep. And uh, uh, what was a lot of what he was doing? Uh, I mean, not the eating people part, but, you know, he was trying to make companions. He That's was trying true. to make sure people would never leave him. He was looking for human connections he could otherwise not make. Um so I would think I, I would say that that's probably a very uh, a common occurrence uh, with people ASPD is is wanting authentic human connections that they have a lot of difficulty uh, making, you know, and, and apparently I'm pleasant to be around. People seem to enjoy my company for the most part. And uh, so I, I have not had problems, you know, having having people around me that I like and appreciate and respect, uh, which is very nice. You know, I've, I've got my uh, very, very, very valuable and, and, you know, beloved relationships with my partners. So, you know, I'm not completely without, but yeah, it definitely, I do wish that I could experience more of that. Uh, but you know, the, the mechanism is just malfunctioning that -hmm. allows that to happen. Yeah. I I think it's probably more common than people realize. I I think a big part of it is just that, um, you know, strong emotion and emotional connections is just such a big part of what a lot of people associate with being human as opposed to an Android. So, you know, if you're, if you're low on those things or lacking those things completely, yeah, I mean, people will often kind of recoil and, you know, if they sense that those things are absent or turned way down, they will, you know, wonder if this person's safe to be around. What are they thinking? You know, uh, are they, are they sinister as the one person said? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think I am. Um, this is funny. A, 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 a longtime former leader in TST once uh, uh, said to me uh, that I was drama proof. And, uh, you know, because, you know, TST has some drama sometimes. <laughs> I would 100% call you drama proof. It's a superpower. In, in this case, it's a superpower. It is people a superpower. Come, people have come in and out of my life uh, through TST sometimes so rapidly. And I've had to counsel a lot of people who are new to leadership who are struggling with the emotional elements of making and losing friends left and right. Mm. And I'm like, oh, it's easy. Just don't make any. And that's literally the advice I gave somebody one time. And they looked at me like I was fucking insane. And I was like, all right, let me rephrase this. Be more cautious over building friendships 
There you uh, go. Nice. A lot nice, of these yes. will come and go very quickly and end explosively. So, you know, if you're like me and, and you don't make those connections easily, then you can break those connections much easier. Hmm. So people can come and go in and out of my life. And, you know, if they need help with TST stuff or whatever, or, or whatever, they just want to bitch about, you know, their lives or whatever, I'll listen and I'll try to give the best advice I have, but I'm not emotionally invested in it the way where it's going to hurt me if it all blows up. And it often, you know, it, it does sometimes. And I've lost friends. Uh, some of them I wish I hadn't lost. But, you know, it just kind of rolls off me. I'm like, oh, well, that stinks. And then I move on with my day. So, hmm. yeah, it's, it's helped me to be very drama proof. And I think it's part of my longevity in this organization is the ability to not be personally affected by that constant, you know, making and breaking of friendships. Yeah. Whereas, like, for me to survive, I have to, like, surround myself with layers upon layers upon layers of, of uh you know, emotional padding <laughs> and and right. like hard boundaries and self-care and all of this shit just to like get through the fucking day. So, yeah, it is kind of like a superpower. But, well, we are we're getting close to time and we and I, I have to run to the temple service soon. But this has been great. And to reiterate what I said at the very top. I feel like I know you to be a very just and good person. And Thank you. I love working with you. And like I, I, I work with both you and Shalise on ordination council. I consider you a colleague and I just love working with you. And, and so I hope that this conversation is helpful for people to kind of get a, a sense of what it's like to be you. Yeah, I hope so. It's, it's been an interesting exploration for me. And I think it's been interesting for those close to me to interact with these ideas. And, you know, I, I know Shalisa said it's helped her to understand me better yeah. and uh, apparently loves me more for it, which is wonderful because I love her a lot too. Mm, absolutely. Um, and intensely. And uh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to read about uh, some of my experiences, it's, it's dexdejardine.com slash blog. That's where I post my mental health stuff. Desjardins spelled exactly like it's pronounced D-E-S-J-A-R. I don't know how the fuck it's spelled. D-I-N-S. Anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I'll, put, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> and everyone, go read his work. It is absolutely fascinating and very, very interesting and really moving as well. Like you writing about your childhood is just so good. Very, very well written. But all right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is Wild by 11D7. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 